Welcome to Healthy Hawkesbury, a podcast for people living in our area, brought to you by the leading health experts servicing our community. Our program is brought to you by St John of God Healthcare's Hawkesbury District Health Service, your local hospital positioned in the heart of the magnificent Hawkesbury Valley. Health professionals in conversation, talking about what matters most to our community. We cover all range of topics, from the latest innovations, fascinating histories of conditions and treatments, to the ailments that are particularly prevalent in the Hawkesbury. With a panel of health experts, we'll explore everything health-related from advice, insights and access. Brought to you by our community, for our community. The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature only. It should not be relied on to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any disease or as a substitute for the specific advice of a health professional. Hawkesbury District Health Service does not assume liability for the accuracy or completeness of the information. If you are seeking advice relevant to your particular circumstances or are feeling unwell, you should seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any surgical or invasive procedure carries risks. Before proceeding, you should seek a second opinion from an appropriately qualified health practitioner. Welcome to Healthy Hawkesbury. I'm Dr. Michael Crampton, a Windsor GP for over 23 years, and I'm also the Integrating Care Clinical Lead for the Nepean Blue Mountains Primary Health Network. Today, we're talking about sleep why it's important yet so elusive for many of us and what can be done about it. The subject of difficulty with sleeping is close to my own heart. Many of my patients experience sleep problems. I'm happy to share with them also that it's something that I've also had to deal with in my own personal health story and we might talk about that a little bit later on. Sleep's fundamental to our daily functioning. We spend almost a third of our lives asleep. Sleep restores our physical body And mentally, sleep has a huge role to play in our ability to function and to cope with all the challenges life throws at us. Sleep disorders can lead to or aggravate a range of other common health problems, including hypertension. Yet insomnia or even more complex sleep disorders affect a significant number of Australians and maybe they don't all know it. Stress adds to or for many causes sleep problems. And of course, with COVID, for many people, it's a stressful time, which is adding to their sleep troubles. But not all sleep problems are caused by stress issues. Reflecting on your sleep quality is something every one of us needs to do from time to time. If you have any concerns about your sleep, a great place to start is by having a chat with your general practitioner. To help us understand some of the more complexities of sleep and sleep disorders, I'm pleased to say I'm joined by Dr. Donald Lee, sleep physician at Hawkesbury District Health Service. Don, thanks very much for your time. It's fantastic to have you there. Thank you for having me. With pleasure. Don, because we're talking to both the community and our local GPs today, uh, we're going to break the conversation up into two parts. In the early part of our discussion, we'd like to provide some general information and advice about sleep, what a lack of sleep could be doing to your overall health, and tips for getting a good night's sleep. Then in the second half of our conversation, can we delve into a more technical discussion for our local GPs? Let's talk about the discussion you should be having with your patients, when it's best to recommend a home study versus a lab study, the accreditation process for sleep study, uh, reading a patient report, as well as some of the special equipment that's now used. Can we also talk about treatments with a particular focus on CPAP, 
and finally cover the role of GPs in ongoing care. Absolutely. Can you tell us a bit about your interest in sleep medicine, how it came about and why you stayed working in the field? My interest in sleep medicine actually came from my training in respiratory medicine, but I came to respiratory medicine through the eyes of a rat, I like to say to people. Um, it was actually working as part of the master's project. I, I was experimenting with oxygen and some rats and looking at what we're measuring in rat eyes for particularly went with the changes of oxygen concentration. And that led me to physicians training after that and stayed in respiratory medicine after that. So throughout the journey in respiratory training, seriously interested in the sleep biology, sleep physiology, and particularly the sleep technology. And that's brought me into sleep medicine. And what keeps it going is the fact that it's such a new discipline in relative terms um, that uh, the technology is evolving, the, the medicine is evolving and the science is evolving. And that's where the interest is uh, for me. Fantastic. And I must say that as an older doctor now, um, this is something which is not within the scope of our training when we were younger doctors. And so it's fantastic to have the opportunity to be briefed about this by someone who's so up in the field as yourself. Well, thank you, comrades, and, and I'll try and do my best to, to update everybody. So most of us know generally that sleep has a restorative function, but Don, can you help us understand a bit more about how critical sleep is to the various systems on our body and what's the impacts of too little sleep? Yeah, so sleep problems can affect many organ systems and many parts of the body, ranging from the psyche to the physical body itself. And it's said, you know, between 33 and 45% of Australian adults have, have wear the consequences of inadequate sleep. So sleep conditions are very common amongst Australians and obstructive sleep apnea really can be said to be accounting for about 5 to 10% of those population. But the consequences of having not enough sleep or bad sleep range from uh, inability to make good decisions, leading on to issues of anxiety, leading on to issues of mental health. Some of the metabolic consequences are going to be the increases in body stresses leading to increased risk of conditions such as uh, type 2 diabetes and uh, hypertension. I guess the inadequate sleep really is a big factor in our society and can really negatively impact well-being. It leads to reduced productivity for all across the board, particularly, I guess, talking about sickness in workplace so really if we don't get enough sleep generally is that the the regulation of the immune system is affected and it leads to more sickness you talked about adequate amount of sleep what's an adequate amount of sleep and i presume you're going to talk about both time and quality the time question's easy to answer i guess we sleep one third of our lives that number comes through with that 24 hours in a day dividing by three, really. It's said that between seven to nine hours of sleep is the recommended kind of duration for adults, about seven to 10 for younger people. Um, and I guess one of the myths is that as we go, get older, we need less sleep. Adults still kind of need seven to nine hours of sleep regardless um, of how, how senior. Less than seven to nine hours of sleep, generally you'd expect people to have some degree of sleepiness and then so sleep deprivation that's where it creeps in if you have disrupted sleep in that time for whatever reason such as um such as obstructive sleep apnea causing you to wake up overnight or snoring causing you to wake up overnight that certainly will affect the duration of sleep leading to sleep deprivation um, so quality of sleep in that time really important so we see a lot of people in their normal lives who have disrupted sleep. I can think about, for example, two fantastically common categories. One is young mums um, and young dads for that matter, so with newborns and, and young children. But the second is also shift workers 
particularly mm. healthcare shift workers, because I'm aware from my own family of a number of healthcare shift workers who have crazy patterns of shift that they have to work. Mm. You know, what, what are the impacts here? Because these aren't going to get seven to nine hours of sleep every night. No, that's very true, Michael. And shift work places a significant burden on the body, and you've seen it firsthand. It does cause issues of reduced uh, productivity for these people. And in fact, the International Classification of Sleep Disease actually has a category called shift work disorder. Basically, it's people who are on a shift work cycle and then feel hypersomnotized, sleepy at times when they shouldn't be. A large part of that is related to the inadequate sleep. So it's vitally important for people who are on shift work and young mums and the like to, to have adequate sleep. In terms of how we achieve that, that's half the challenge. But that's certainly something that we need to keep in our minds as GPs in our conversations with our patients when we're talking about sleep before we start getting any, any of the technologies and the, uh, the common and the more obscure issues. It's actually just simply the, the, the amount and quality of sleep and to work out your ways of trying to really get that. Absolutely. No, it's not an uncommon story that we see people who were referred for periods of unrefreshing sleep and disrupted sleep, that they turn out to be uh, woken up half a dozen times by some source in the middle of the night. They don't have sleep apnea at all, but it turns out the garbage truck always turns up at two o'clock in the morning and followed by the recycling truck turning up at four o'clock in the morning. So they've woken up several times throughout the night for different environmental things or, you know, a pet jumps onto the bed and wakes them up continually throughout the night. Then they come in saying that they are unrested the next day. So that, that I guess, highlights the importance of that conversation with the general practitioner about, you know, what actually happens in the actual sleep period. Good. So, I mean, that's some, actually some pretty good tips there anyway because it sounds like the notion of even earplugs or something like that's probably a better idea than some temazepam to solve a lot of the issues for, for people with uh, sleep stuff. Absolutely. But can we talk about some of the more obscure sort of sleep disorders that you see? We do want to talk about obstructive sleep apnea, but, but there's some other ones. Can you just mention a few of the more obscure other diagnoses as well? There's a whole gamut of categories we, we think about sleep medicine. And, and the major part in the society is actually insomnia, right? And so with sleep medicine, we automatically jump towards um, obstructive sleep apnea. But insomnia, um, the diseases of hypersomnolence, we call them, uh, which is the sleepiness states. So narcolepsy uh, is in there for people who is affected by sleep encroaching into the day. There is a category of diseases we call parasomnias, which are funny movements at night, sleepwalking, sleep talking, acting out of dreams. So that was REM behavioural disorder. They all fall under the category of parasomnia. The other things that we think about is restless legs, which are um, no, periodically movements and restless legs are in there. Um, also disrupting sleep, potential to disrupt sleep. Then there's also the circadian rhythm disorders. So shift work disorders fall into that. Shift work disorder falls into that. And um, the advanced sleep phase, delayed sleep phase, uh, jet lag, uh, fall under circadian rhythm disorders. It's all broad spectrum of things that we, we see um, all fall under the guise of sleep medicine and so it's more than just obstructive sleep apnea. Don, obviously um, the, the history that we take uh, for people who are complaining of sleepiness and, and so on is actually quite important and from what you're talking about, you know, the environmental and social factors that come into it. The other thing which is big in my mind is substances. So what kind of substances can be responsible for disturbing sleep? Caffeine is probably the most legal drug in society and um, that has a tremendous effect on sleep. The effects of caffeine can last up to 24 hours. The question often arises about how much caffeine is too much caffeine. Um, we all drink excessive amounts of caffeine in society these days, I think. But if you have disrupted sleep, 
it's a good idea to limit one's caffeine intake to one beverage a day to before midday. Because if we assume that caffeine hangs around for 12 to 24 hours, then if you have your last caffeinated beverage at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it may still be active at 2 o'clock in the morning. So if you're not falling asleep and finding it difficult to fall asleep um, before 2 o'clock in the morning, that might be the reason why. So reducing the caffeine intake. Of course, the other legal drug in society is actually alcohol, um, which it can also disrupt sleep, but the metabolism of alcohol itself can cause sleep disruption for, simply because of the fact that as you metabolise alcohol, you dehydrate, then also raises the core body temperature. We talk about sleep uh, quality in here. So inducing good sleep, if we, I think of the phrases, we cool down to stay down and we warm up to wake up. So the sleeping environment has got to be cool, but not cold in order to have good sleep quality. So when we metabolise alcohol, as the core body temperature rises, it causes significant degrees of sleep fragmentation because as you, you know, you're meant to be cold when you sleep. As the body temperature rises, we actually wake up. Again, things which can be brought out in history. If we divert a little bit into the treatment of insomnia, whereby we're talking about drugs, use for the treatment of insomnia, not such a good thing in the long term as, um, as you, you know, Michael, so we try to minimise the, the use of long-term hypnotics and, and sleeping agents for the treatment of insomnia with the main therapy. It should be shifting down the lines of cognitive behavioural therapy to address the, some of the, the insomnia problems that we have. So perhaps it's a good time to provide our listeners with some of your tips for getting a good night's sleep, what you'd refer to as sleep hygiene. So I did mention before we cool down to stay down. And we warm up to wake up. And that all centres around kind of the circadian rhythm as well. So core body temperature has a lot to do with the sleep regulation in, in the circadian cycle. So if the sleeping environment is cool, it's better inducive to better sleep. If there is movement of air across the bed, so across the, the face of the bed, not from the top like a ceiling fan, but, but a sideways blowing fan across the bed, it tends to improve sleep through, you know, just cooling down the patient and that that in itself is really important the bedroom we we talk about has to be dark has to be pitch black so light is bad for sleep because sleep moves away from light so if often the the there is bright light around it's impossible to fall asleep and, and the shift workers will attest to that you know bright day outside if you don't have blockout blinds if the room is not dark you're not going to sleep so it's important to keep the room dark and black so and, and you could be innovative here if you don't have blockout blinds eye masks when we used to travel, we used to be handed out what those on, on, on aircraft. Noise is an important factor. So loud noises stops progression to deeper sleep, be it noise of, of vehicles outside um, or whatever environmental noise that you have, um, that often causes fragmented sleep and then disrupted sleep. So earplugs are underestimated. There are fancy earplugs that people sell out there which, which mask noise or play kind of um, soothing noises. Um, I'm just a proponent for silence, right? So I reckon silence is probably the best thing um, for people. And with the caveat that tinnitus, right, people with tinnitus, a little bit of constant white noise in the background may actually help with tinnitus. So noise, environment uh, for temperature and, and light, very important. Other factors of sleep hygiene, making sure that one isn't exercising two hours before bedtime because that can also push back the onset of sleep. We're very tempted, I guess, if we wake up overnight to look at the clock. So one of the things we address is actually the clock watching. Um, to reduce the uh, temptation to look at a clock, I say to people, get rid of the alarm clock that you can see overnight. 
don't use the phone as an alarm clock, get a dedicated bedside table clock um, so that you can cover, you can cover your bedside table clock alarm um, and not be tempted to look at it every minute of the night when you're awake because the, every time you process that that time, you look at the clock and you think, oh, it's 2.01, I'm still awake. You look back two minutes later, it's 2.03, I'm still awake. Oh, every time you look at the clock, you stimulate yourself in order to maintain wakefulness. I'd say, put a towel over your clock. It's dark outside. What time do you think it is? It's dark. It's sleepy time. And certainly if you're doing all those things and you're still finding that the sleep is disrupted and you're tired the next day, then that conversation needs to be taken a bit further. So, Don, if GPs have covered all the sleep hygiene considerations with patients, what are the other issues they should start exploring? So the duration of sleep, if you're having nine hours of sleep and why are you waking up still tired? Could it be because that there is something else going on, such as thyroid disease, such as iron deficiency? But could it also be something in sleep itself? Could it be that there are periods of time of stopping breathing and low oxygen in sleep, fragmenting one's sleep in order leading to unrefreshing sleep in the morning. So that's the conversation that we want people to have. Maybe that, that's where we start investigating. Once you've excluded all the different things, excluded the, the medical things, excluded the, um, the environment, excluded the um, suboptimal behaviour in the sleep time, then we need to look deeper into that. And that's where the sleep study would fall. It's really vitally important that one addresses those concerns of tiredness with the GP and have those rolling conversations because overall long-term health is that fixing um, adequate sleep and ensuring normal sleep improves well-being. Diabetes risk, heart disease risk, stroke risk, blood pressure risk um, and driving crash risk, right? All of that improves with good quality, adequate sleep. Absolutely, yeah. So I've got just one more question before we just go specifically into sort of sleep studies and so on. The effect on function of mm. poor sleep can be equated to something like uh, a rise in your blood alcohol level. Can you tell us about that? So if we are sleep deprived for about 17 hours, it's, it's equivalent to actually driving with the blood alcohol limit of 105. So that's the legal limit, as you know. Can we delve into a more technical discussion for our local GPs? There's two ways to determine sleep problems uh, that, that we're aware of as part of our engagement with uh, your speciality, so home studies and lab studies. What's the difference? Why should we be pointing a patient in one direction or the other? Often asked question and um, lots of confusion from the fact that it's just an emerging kind of technology field. And a lot of people jumping in with the opportunity to do these studies and so on. We get promoted often by, by many who want to come and do the studies for us. There's a, c a certain degree of commercial drive to that, isn't there? Yeah. We should actually all be operating under the guidelines of the Australasian Sleep Association and the bodies in terms of guiding us towards investigating sleep disorders. That's the first thing to make. And, and in those guidelines, they say that a home study is appropriate if the only concern is obstructive sleep apnea. So in selecting a type of study, if you're thinking purely of obstructive sleep apnea, then that's where a home study becomes appropriate. Whereas the laboratory study is much more extensive. It's said to be a gold standard investigation and certainly traditionally is the only type of investigation. Um, but as the technology improves, um, more home studies are being performed. But it's never appropriate to do a uh, in my opinion, in my opinion, that it's never appropriate to do a home study on someone who you suspect to not have obstructive sleep apnea, but something else. 
um, and what, what could that something else be? It might be, uh, it might be narcolepsy. It might be parasomnia, so the sleepwalking, sleep talking, dream enactment type, um, or, or even insomnia. If we're trying to exclude other causes for people's insomnia, um, a, a home study is certainly inappropriate. The differences between a home study and a lab study are firstly, a home study is a quite a simplified test where we don't have as many sensors and the sensors that we have in, in the domains that we measure are reduced in its uh, sampling rates. So the signal quality comes through as not as good as the sleep lab. And obviously, if you're at home, things fall off. They remain fallen off. There's no technician there to put it back on. So we end up losing a channel for the whole study. The laboratory study is able to under that because there's a technician there looking at the signals constantly as um, as the patient's being investigated. So bad signal quality comes along, they intervene, they, they put the sensor back on. It provides a better measurement, uh, more comprehensive study. In terms of considering the study type, so we talk, talk about the conditions that we're investigating for, but also, you know, really important is actually patient preference. If, if there is a problem with being in a confined environment, being in a strange environment, um, you've got to balance that up against signal quality in terms of determining which is the more appropriate way to investigate the patient. Donald, just before we move on to talk about your sleep lab and some of the important uh, equipment and outcomes from your sleep lab, I'm just interested, I guess, as a GP in, in interpreting home study reports that come to me. Um, I guess two things about it. What's the kind of the guts of the report telling me? And secondly, can we be led astray, false positives, false negatives, out of the reports? Good question, Michael. It's quite difficult sometimes. I completely agree. Looking prima facie at a report, it's very difficult to tell with a degree of confidence without an in-depth understanding of actually what was being recorded about the quality of that study. Often there is no statement about how good the raw data is and purely as you see on the paper when you have a report in your hand um, you have no it's not given to you in terms of how good that night was so you're purely relying on the reporting physician's opinion about the data set itself I would be looking within the, the body of the report for a mention of the quality and the degree of um, certainty that the physician has. If there's no reference to that, it's very, very difficult. So I would go back to the history, actually talking to the patient about well, ha what actually happened that night when the study, regardless of whether it's a lab study or a home study, I'd say, look, did you sleep? Did you wake up a lot? Um, and correlating that with the figure in the study of total sleep time because it's always mentioned, you know, how, how much sleep in a, we think the sleep the patient had during the start time of the monitoring. Did it correlate with the same kind of degree of certainty? That's sort of a baseline. The patient's experience is really important in this. Some of the other things that we look for on that piece of paper for interpretation is the, the consistency of the lines on the summary, summary graphic. So on any sleep study, there should be a, a summary page, the picture, the squiggly lines within the box of that sleep study is what I'm referring to. Um, if there are broken lines in there, if there is uh, inconsistency of signal, it should actually be shown on that picture. So the particularly line, the oximetry, if there are broken lines in the oximetry, patchy kind of recordings on that, you can probably safely say that the recording wasn't great and that the physician's opinion on that study is based on patchy data. So if there's a significant call of severity, significant call on the sleep study of saying someone has severe sleep apnea, you would like to see that there is a good, solid, consistent line on that graphic to, for the oximetry 
if we have a home study then that's reporting a severe sleep apnea, should we go on and consider coming to your lab? So tell us, tell us about your lab. No, just before I do, I mean, I think, can I, can I just expand on that a little bit with the home studies, um, Michael? So I think sure. if you go into the premise of actually suspicion for obstructive sleep apnea, so with the understanding of the context of looking at a home study for obstructive sleep apnea alone, if the study comes back as a negative study on a home study when you're expecting a patient to have obstructive sleep apnea, that would be the instance to lead on to a laboratory study because it's a, it's a clinical suspicion from the history that one takes that you're relying on. So you're almost going into a home study thinking the patient already has obstructive sleep apnea to do the investigation uh, to confirm. That's the place for the home study. And so in terms of false positive mm-hmm. and false negative, you really rely on your clinical suspicion at that point. So if the study comes back negative for high suspicion for obstructive sleep apnea, that's the possibly a false negative in that sense, right? And that's you would lead on to a formal diagnostic sleep study to confirm what you think the patient has. If the picture then comes back from a laboratory study for obstructive sleep apnea, then you're validated in terms of your clinical risk, right? So yeah, and as long as the signal's looking correct, good, correct. then we can be pretty confident with the diagnosis. The sleep lab in itself, but the sleep lab is set up to, to record the biological signals in high frequency, in the kind of high-definition frequency. So that, that's the difference between that home study kind of signal and also the laboratory study signal. So if we go into the sleep lab thing, it's basically recording a whole lot of brain waves and a whole lot of breathing data and the oxygen data in the blood and correlating that with a timeline of what is happening to the patient at that particular point in time. We also complement that with video to see so the technician can physically see what the, uh, what the patient is doing at that time when the signals are occurring. That's the sleep lab. And yours is accredited. We are accredited and that's a voluntary process which we put ourselves through uh, for external validation. It's a quite extensive, right? It takes about 12 months or so to, to prepare for accreditation in a sleep laboratory. The Australasian Sleep Society has it worked with National Association of Testing Authorities, NATA, um, to, to develop a set of standards which are internationally recognised. And so the accreditation of a sleep lab is that we voluntarily put ourselves under the externally determined standards internationally recognised standards to make sure that we are doing the right thing. It's the security of knowing that that basically what we say we are doing conforms to the standard. All right. Now, I understand that you've got a fancy piece of equipment called a polysomnograph as well as part of your lab. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the full name for a sleep study is a polysomnograph. So polysomnography is the study of the sleep study itself. So it's a fancy word for the bioamplifier, which is gathering the signals um, as the central piece of equipment in a sleep laboratory. In previous times, it, you know, we, we had thermal paper as recording the signals that we get out of a, a bioamplifier, which used to be the size of a bookshelf. And now it's been con- condensed into a, a small computer tower. Yeah, so, so it's digitised and we now look at sleep studies on the screen from the results of the polysomnograph. And so this is recording all the multiple channels of information that comes in? Basically, yeah. The signals that we capture are the the brainwaves, the EEG, which tell us what type of sleep people are in and whether or not people are asleep. One of the main distinctions between a home study and a lab study at that point is that the EEG that we acquire in a laboratory study is much more extensive than a home study. So we can tell the different stages of sleep much more easily, whether it be a stage N1 sleep, N2 sleep, or all sort of... um, different sleep stages, we're looking at 30 seconds of brainwaves at a time to classify the stages of sleep. Then if we move 
down the body, we've got the couple of motion sensors, if you can call that, effort bands. We call them effort bands, basically measuring chest expansion and abdominal effort, tummy movement, um, trying to represent the workings of the, the respiratory bellows, the pump. So we're looking at breathing effort with those things. Um, we also have ECG as a continuous measurement, and it's often said that a sleep study is probably the longest measurement of an ECG outside of a Holter monitor. So we often pick up atrial fibrillation with the sleep study, which, of course, you know, obstructive sleep apnea is a major contributor to the cause of atrial fibrillation. So there's the oxygen sensor that goes on to the finger. There is the breathing monitor, so the move air monitor under the nose with nasal cannula. We have a thermistor, which is a fancy device for movement of air, um, measures the changes in temperature as a backup sensor um, that's placed in front of the mouth and in the nose. Uh, what else do we have? We have um, some electrodes, EMG electrodes, electromyelogram electrodes, um, measuring muscular movement in the neck and also on the legs to, to look for leg movement. Many, many wires hanging off the patient at that point in time is then plugged into a small box we call the head box, and then in turn it's plugged into the bioamplifier to, to measure, uh, to collect the information. From there it's transported onto the screen, to monitoring technician's screen, to monitor in real time. That kind of is the, um, the setup of a sleep laboratory. So with all this information, what's next? What do you do with this information? Lots of staring at the screen. The, the information is uh, analysed firstly by accredited sleep technicians in my laboratory, in my practice. So we have a team of sleep scientists as a sleep scientist who firstly stage the sleep to, to basically classify whether or not a patient is asleep and the different stages of sleep to say, you know, that forms the basis of the first step. And then after that, they, the technicians look and score the study for events. So we're looking for different types of things that occur in sleep, such as stopping breathing. We call those apneas and um, hypopneas, which is not moving enough air, not moving as much air as they should be, um, hypopneas. And basically trying to, to classify everything that occurs at the night. So looking for ECG abnormalities, looking for limb movement, beyond the breathing abnormalities. All of that is then put into a report for the reporting physician. Often what I do on a Sunday night is to look through these, these studies 30 seconds at a time for brain, brain waves and five minutes at a time for the, all the other data and to try and work out the picture from there. That's the reporting of a sleep study. And so what you read on the bottom of the page is the sleep physician's report from looking through the processed, scored sleep study by the sleep scientist. This is also the area where accreditation comes in as well. So in terms of the accreditation standards, there are certain, certain standards that we have to meet in terms of analysing the signals. So the technicians go by that standard and don't score events that are outside that standard. So when the data comes back, it's reliable to the physician to report. So with the report in hand then, what's next? The patient comes back to you and do you make some recommendations or do you actually institute therapies? We do. Um, the patient doesn't necessarily have to come back to myself because you may know that general practitioners can refer directly into a sleep lab, um, providing Medicare criteria that, we, that, that GPs have to satisfy in order for them to directly refer into a sleep laboratory. And if there are questions about those referrals and the ability to refer, our, our my sleep lab manager can talk to the GP about that and, and guide you through the process. 
Um, so if you have been the referrer of that sleep study, the, the report will go back to you. The referring physician will go through the report with the patient and the necessary therapies be delivered. So if they were coming to me for the report, I would be um, explaining to the patient what, what's happened to that night and working out what the therapies would be. So the discussion focuses around obstructive sleep apnea and sleep disorder breathing. But um, so if I go beyond that and I say, look, this sleep study was to look for um, to look for hypersomnolence, so sleepiness. If the study comes back as saying, okay, they fell asleep very, very quickly and they entered into different stages of sleep, they entered into REM sleep, dream sleep very quickly after the onset of the initial sleep period, we would have high suspicion for conditions such as narcolepsy. And then we'd talk about the results of that and how we actually manage that and further investigate with others, other more fancy tests than the diagnostic sleep study we call the MSLT, the, the mean sleep latency test, to try and prove the sleepiness and to diagnose narcolepsy. And from that point, we, we treat with medication for narcolepsy. So there's the whole process of that. But if it was just for, say, obstructive sleep apnea, we would then start people on the most appropriate uh, PAP device, positive airways pressure device, and monitor the patient from the practice and also with the help of the equipment provider. For the GPs who have directly referred, I think the key thing is actually finding a local provider of equipment who is knowledgeable in what they provide. We rely largely on, um, on these people to, to deliver education to the patient about their device, about uh, the appropriateness of the mask. Because a common patient complains so of the fact that I don't know how to use the machine, the mask doesn't fit, and, and that stops them from using therapy in the first first um, instance, right, using the, the device to treat obstructive sleep apnea in the first instance. The studies have shown that, I guess, if you don't have a happy patient in the first two weeks of usage of CPAP, it's very, very difficult to maintain that patient on therapy. So the therapy provider really has to be in a position to... Um, to follow up very early with the patient and to follow up with care and advising them with care about the equipment because if you lose the patient's interest in the first two weeks, it's very, very tough to recover. Can your sleep lab manager help provide advice about some of the uh, providers of these sorts of resources and services in our Hawkesbury area? Absolutely, we, we can. I'm pretty agnostic in terms of referring to brands or, and I think I urge the same for all general practitioners out there for, for not to be specific for brands and specific for um, what brand of equipment that you use for, but look for the quality provider for, for care. And our sleep lab manager has a list of providers that we can um, guide you through. I'm particularly interested in people who do not push the sale of a CPAP machine. To push a CPAP machine upon a patient and to force them to buy um, after not being entirely um, entirely fixed with their symptoms is somewhat of a situation where I don't want our patients to be in. So I'd, I'd be interested in the sleep provider um, paying quite a lot of attention to the comfort of the patient before they ask them to make that financial commitment to a device, which is pretty expensive, right? So you'd want them to make an informed decision. A large part of actually the equipment is actually the mask, and that's the most important part of the kit. If the mask fit is bad, it doesn't matter what, what device they have, in particularly the automatic devices, it won't be delivering effective therapy. And it's up to the equipment provider to ensure that the mask fit is adequate. We've got fancy tools in terms of looking at whether or not the, the mask is fitting well. We, we have a leak um, 
yes, a mask leak is monitored through the machine itself and fancy interfaces that we have nowadays, which weren't available to us before uh, to monitor the progress of that. I guess that leads into a discussion about what we have in terms of technology, isn't it, Michael? Yeah, I think um, there's a lot that we can talk about still, but perhaps we might just come back to uh, a patient and a GP focus just in closing. So firstly, I can share with you that I actually use a CPAP mask and I was diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea perhaps 10 years ago. I have to say that the CPAP device has made a dramatic difference to both my life and to the life of my wife. I started with uh, daytime tiredness and uh, excessive night snoring, which was disturbing my wife. And that led me to uh, uh, referral process through uh, your notion of uh, diagnostic and then titration overnight sleep studies, which are interesting being wired for sound in all kinds of ways, mm. as you said, mm. uh, sufficient to make a diagnosis for me. And in sticking to the therapy, uh, it's made a dramatic change to, uh, to my life and the quality of life for, for both myself and my wife. The mask fit conversation is absolutely true. Uh, masks need to be well fitted and um, they make such a difference to uh, the effectiveness of the therapy. So I guess just to come back then to the GP's experience. So we have patients who come to us uh, and patients out there uh, with symptoms. What's the bottom line advice to um, patients who've got some kind of suspicion? Should they come and talk to their GP? Without a doubt, Michael, without a doubt. Sleep is such a vital part, such, such a vital part of life. Bad sleep leads to just bad health outcomes. So encourage those conversations in any way to talk about actually what happens in a 30 of your life, what happens in a 30 a day, sleep quality. Um, and once it's teased out a bit further, things can be done in order to improve that situation. So it's certainly something we should bring into, for example, our health assessment conversations and so on with our patients. It forms as part of that chronic health care plan, doesn't it, in terms of the chronic health for the patient, the long-term, long-standing health of the patient into the future. Um, with, I guess, the health plan of you know looking after someone's sugars, say, for instance, if, if there's erratic sugar control for no apparent reason, it may actually be sleep disordered breathing causing some of those issues. So in addressing the sleep disordered breathing part of things, it just makes your life much more easy looking after someone's sugars, for instance. And that's and true for hypertension and management and so on as well, isn't it? Blood pressure and cardiovascular risk. I mean, I alluded before the fact that there's um, atrial fibrillation, Atrial fibrillation as a significant correlate to obstructive sleep apnea. Um, if we address the obstructive sleep apnea, it's easier for the cardiologist to manage the atrial fibrillation. It's easier for people to stay in sinus rhythm. So it's well worthwhile considering, I guess, sleep health in the long term. But I guess you, you swing that back around to the patient, right? So improving the sleep quality improves the quality of life of the patient. And it's all about the quality of life, I think. If there is disruption of sleep from, for the patient themselves, for, their, um, for the events that occur overnight, fixing that improves their quality of life dramatically, reduces their risk, I guess, in terms of their function in society, such as crash risk, reduces their risk to themselves in terms of long-term health consequences of hypertension and diabetes, so all of that, so improving quality of life. And also you improve the quality of life for their partners. Absolutely. And as you say in your story of you know, having your obstructive sleep apnea treated, Michael, and thank you for sharing that with us. It's um, it's very powerful for the fact that, you know, if, if your partner is happier, then I, I, it's not even arguably. I mean, you know that life is just going to be rosier if your partner is happier. 
So with the suspicion raised for the GPs then, how easy is the referral process to your lab? What's your kind of um, timeframes and what's your capacity and, and your advice for us working with your lab? We triage all of our referrals to, to try and help the people that are, that are the sickest and the neediest as a matter of priority. So within the standards, an urgent sleep study is uh, considered to be within the month of referring to the practice. So we would certainly try to accommodate within the, within the month uh, to have someone seen if it's very urgent. If you're referring through to my practice here, and I would say if the appointment time is in not satisfactory or needing a bit more urgent attention, we're very happy to take the phone call just to say, hey, you know, Don, we need to get this patient sorted out very quickly. Um, we do our best to accommodate that within the time period that we can. You know, there are other things that we can do actually before the, before the sleep study itself. The referral process for my, my practice is that we see the referral, then we triage and we contact the patients through. We certainly do take the referrals just for a sleep study itself. And we'd welcome those if GPs think it's appropriate that a patient have a laboratory sleep study or a home study for that instance. Um, we would deliver the sleep study and then send you back the report. And often if you need to have some guidance on the report in terms of saying what to do with it, now I'll put that on the report. Or if you want the patient seen for formal management through the sleep practice here, we can certainly accommodate that with, with the appointment there to follow. Good. So all the options are on the table. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, just, I guess the final part then is the end story, the end game. So what's the GP role once the diagnosis is made and the therapy is in place? What, what's our role now once we've got patients who are on their CPAP therapy? It's an, an ongoing engagement with the patient for how their sleep quality is. So um, if they're on therapy, I think the GP... GPs should certainly be interested in actually whether or not there's been a difference in the therapy that they've entered into. And if we can focusing on just device, to, uh, if, if they're being treated with a, with a PAP device, positive airways pressure device, um, the engagement could be that, you know, how are you sleeping with the CPAP? How are you sleeping with the machine going all night? Are you feeling refreshed in the morning? All those questions I think should come up every engagement that you have with the GP, just like, you know, are you short of breath? It, it's one of those questions, how is your sleep? Um, are you feeling with the device? The patients nowadays with the technology often have, um, as with most things, they have an app. There's an app for that. There, there, there's an app that goes with the CPAP machines that, that give a readout of what the machine's been doing as an average. So, for instance, if the sleep study says patient stops breathing and, and has events, we call those uh, events overnight, has 30, 40 events per night, uh, per hour of sleep per night, per hour of sleep. The app would show the patient every morning, every day as an ongoing trend, how many residual events that they have. And that's the reference we call the AHI. So the sleep study AHI says 40. The patient would come in with a, an app that says their average AHI is three. Average AHI is four. We certainly want that. We want that number to be less than five by um, by convention. So you could ask the question: well, What's the score? What's your app say um, about your sleep that night and the average? If it's creeping more than five, um, and it trends more than five, and the patient is starting to feel tired again, or sleepy, or whatever their symptoms prior to the therapy, um, then certainly it's further talk, further investigation at that point. And, and more often than not, it's going to be the mask. It's the fact that the mask has become worn 
um, the the mask is now ill-fitting. Uh, and, and so once we address the mask, that number can come back down. So I encourage the patients to to sort of replace their masks between 12 to 18 months from, from new. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure talking. Thanks for listening to Healthy Hawkesbury. If you'd like to learn more about our hospital, doctors and services, please head to sjog.org.au forward slash Hawkesbury or subscribe to Healthy Hawkesbury on your favourite podcast app.